All right, turn your Bibles to James chapter 3 tonight. It's been a little while, feels like, since we've gotten into this, and it has been a little while. We've gone in India, and I want to read you this, uh, it's like we've been doing on, on each of these, kind of read you the section that we're going to discuss tonight to give you an idea, and, and I think this is something that's, that's always good to do when you're studying the Bible, is to read the entire context of the passage to get an idea of what the, what the context has given us, and uh, of course the context of James chapter 3, as we discussed a few weeks ago, is the tongue, and, and the first 12 verses all revolve around that, that idea, and, uh, but remember that that's, that is within the larger context of the book of James, which is an active faith, um, at least that's one of the themes that we talked about, the other one that we talked about is, is uh perfection or maturity as a Christian, um, but an active faith is going to control the tongue, your speech, and your works, though, go together, and, and they together are an indication of whether your faith is alive or dead, and we talked a lot about that in chapter 2, but let's, let's just pick it up there in verse number 13, read these, read these few verses to the end of that chapter, and then talk about it a little bit tonight. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out, a, out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now, keep your finger there and put a bookmark in there. We're going to be coming back to this all night. Uh, I've got a few other places that I want you to look, but everybody talks, everybody does things, right? That's, that's I mean, if you, you, you can't go very long in your life without talking. You can't go very far in your life without doing things. And that speech, those actions result in something, some kind of fruit. And that fruit is either worldly people or spiritually, spiritual people. Worldly people use the wisdom of the world to guide their, their actions and their speech, and that wisdom from below, and that's just, just what I'm going to call it, wisdom from below, because we have wisdom from above, and so the opposite of that is, is wisdom from below. But it's revealed by the fruit, it's revealed by the consequences, it's revealed by the effects. Spiritual people, people of living, active faith, use God's wisdom to guide their speech and guide their actions. And those, uh, that wisdom from above is also revealed by its fruit, by its, by its consequences and by its effects. So we're going to look at those two kinds of wisdom. We're going to look at their characteristics. We're going to see the, their effects. Right? And so the, the, the simple title of this is just active faith produces wisdom. Uh, again, the overall context of everything that we've been looking at in the book of James uh, fits in with this active faith. Are you, your, faith your faith ought to be a doing faith. It ought to show that you're saved. It doesn't save you. It ought to show that you're saved. So the first thing we find there is in, in James chapter four, uh, 3 and verse number 13, which is just really the description of a wise man. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation works with meekness of wisdom. So the evidence of sound faith is a good conversation. And that's an archaic word. It doesn't mean what it means today. 
Today, a conversation is two people talking back and forth. The word conversation refers to our lifestyle. And anytime you see that word, if you think about it as a lifestyle, it very easily fits with the context. Let him show out of a good lifestyle his works with meekness of wisdom. Um, uh, you know, we, we read on Sunday, Hebrews 13 uh, talks about obeying them that have the rule over you, considering the end of their conversation. It doesn't mean the things that they say. It means the way that they live, uh, their lifestyle. So that's a major theme of James. It's actually a major theme of the Bible, a good conversation, living a life that's pleasing to God. But that's how a wise man is known. He's not known only by his words. There's a lot of people who, who talk a good game. They can sound like good Christians, but he's also known by a life that backs up his words. God's given his people... A an almost infallible test to know the wise man. Look at his life. Don't just believe his testimony. Don't just listen to the things that he says. Look at his life. True wisdom is going to be characterized by meekness. He says, uh, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of self-seeking, uh, meekness. Also, true wisdom is an endowment, which is kind of a... Not an archaic word, we just don't use it that much, but in verse 13 it says, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge. It literally just means equipped or to put on, to clothe, uh, to invest. That endowment, the Bible says, comes from above. And as we're shown in several places in the Bible, man does not naturally have wisdom. The Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't naturally have that that wisdom, that has to come from God by the Holy Spirit, has to come through God's Word. And so that's, that, that's the description of a wise man. And so we're going to look at the two different types of wisdom. They're contrasted here in these verses. 14, 15, 16 talk about the wisdom that's from below. 17 and 18 talk about the wisdom from above. So let's talk about those. First of all, the wisdom from below. And we have a description of this wisdom given to us there in verse number 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Earthly means belonging to the earth. It refers to, to the world's system. The Bible calls it the wisdom of the world. He calls it man's wisdom. He calls it fleshly wisdom. We see that in 1 Corinthians. Actually, chapter 1, 2, and 3 all use those terms. Uh, but turn over to Proverbs chapter 16. And like I said, keep your finger there in James 3. We're coming back to that. But Proverbs chapter 16, I think, is a, is a great description of this worldly system, the, the world's idea of how things are, are, are to be. But he says, This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25 says this, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That way that seemeth right, that's the worldly way. That's the earthly way that he's talking about there. Worldliness doesn't consist only of the external things, like drinking and smoking and wearing immodest clothing and all of that kind of stuff. It's, first of all, a heart condition. And that, I mean, that's, that's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. Matthew 5, 6, 7 is all about the heart, right? It, you, you've heard it said. And, and, and Jesus laid down all the different laws. You've heard it said, this law. You've heard it said, this law. But I say unto you, and what he did essentially is throw out the law and say it all deals with your heart. What goes on in your heart is what the important thing is. You can be impressively clean on the outside and worldly on the inside. That was the condition of the Pharisees. 
Boy, how many times Jesus hammered the Pharisees, especially in Matthew. You can, you can read in Matthew 23. He said, like white sepulchers, beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. That idea was that they, you know, they used to paint the, the outside of the tomb to make it look nice, but inside was just rotting bodies, right? Just dead men's bones. And you can look so good on the outside and just be horrible and worthless on the inside. Worldliness consists of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 tells us that. And those are sins of the heart that have external fruit. He says, first of all, that it's earthly, but then he says it's sensual. Dictionary defines sensual as pertaining to, inclined to, or preoccupied with the gratification of the senses or appetites. It also defines it as lacking in moral restraints. It's related to something physical or something alive or something tangible. In other words, it's an emotional reaction from a physical or a tangible situation. We're not dealing with the mind or the spirit or the soul here. We're dealing with the body and with emotions. That's what sensual is all about. And then he says that it's devilish. Uh, if you define that, it's something that's just befitting a devil, right? Something that's devilish belongs to the devil. That wisdom from below is not only from the world beneath heaven, but from the, from the world beneath the earth, hell, right? I, I wish we could take the time to look at it tonight, but look at how the devil operates, beginning all the way with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I mean, he came to Eve and, and he deceived her, and, and that's how he continues to operate today, just the deception. Now, turn over to 1 John chapter 2, because, because those, those three terms, earthly, sensual, devilish, does it remind you of anything that you've heard or read before? It, pop, it, it, just, it, 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 it really hit me that these three things go right along with what we find in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes... And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We, we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's closely related to these three things. The wisdom that comes from below, or the wisdom that is from below, is earthly, sensual, devilish, which fits in with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? If I walk according to the evil ways of the world, and according to the lust of the flesh, I'm walking according to the devil, because he's the God of this world. That's what the Bible tells us very plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And that the one that now, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, now worketh in the children of disobedience. So it's, it's all part of that whole world system. Earthly, sensual, devilish, the world, the flesh, the devil, it's what we fight against constantly in our spiritual lives. The devil is the father of pride. He's the father of envy. He's the father of strife that, that comes with it. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But when we commit those sins, we're walking in the devil's footsteps. And we're fitting in right with what he wants us to do. So the description of this, this wisdom from below, the Bible says it's earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. But let's look at a couple things in, 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 in particular that the Bible says about the wisdom from below. Back in James chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. So the wisdom from below is characterized by bitter envying and strife. Envy is jealousy. It's to want what somebody else has. Think about this, okay? I know that most of us say, oh, I'm not envious, or I'm not jealous, or I'm not whatever. But think about the descriptions 
And think of this as something that you struggle with in your life. And if you do, it's something that you need to address because it's part of this, this worldly wisdom. And if we're, if we're facing life with worldly wisdom, then we're never going to be able to, to, to have the victory in our spiritual lives. But you can be envious because somebody has more money than you have or because somebody has a, a better position or is better looking or is better gifted or any number of things you look at in somebody else and want. Envy doesn't have to be based in reality. It's not based in reality. It's based on our imagination of the way that we perceive things. Oh, she's more beautiful than I am, so, uh, you know, I, I would love to be beautiful like that. And somebody else might be looking at her and saying, that's beautiful, right? I mean, honestly, look at, look at Hollywood today. Most of these people that they put out there as these, you know, supermodels, I'm like, that's a supermodel? I mean, that's, that's nothing, you know, I mean, that's not impressive to me most of the time. You know, and, and so a lot of it's just perceived. It's just imagination, the things that we get envious about. But envy essentially means that I'm not content with what God's given me. It means that I'm unwisely comparing myself to others. It means that I'm self-centered. That's the problem with envy. But envy and bitterness are partners, and that's pretty obvious. Where he says there, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, lie not against the truth. So the bitterness is what builds or fastens together that envy. It's the glue, if you will. Somebody else got the good that you deserved, or somebody that, that you didn't think deserved good got good coming to them. That bitter envy is over sensual things. It's money, stuff, promotions, attention, praise, whatever it happens to be. John Gill wrote this. He, he's a commentator. He said, Envy at the happiness of others is a root of bitterness in the heart, which bears wormwood and gall and produces bitter effects in the persons in whom it is. It embitters their minds against their neighbors and friends. It is rottenness in their bones and slays and destroys those who are so silly as to be governed by it. So he calls bitter envying and strife. Strife is the opposite of peace and unity. That's another characteristic. Of the, of the worldly wisdom, bitter envying and strife. It, it, it refers to quarreling and stirring up trouble. It refers to backbiting and gossiping and talking against the brethren because I don't like them. I don't like what they do. Strife, strife is not caused because I love the truth. There's a lot of people who like, to, who like to pretend that the only reason I'm saying that is because I love the truth and I'm going to stand up for it and I'm going to and honestly, strife is not caused because I love the truth, but because, because I care more about my own selfish interest and my own desire to injure other people than I do for the work of God. Even if the church splits apart, I don't care. I got my way. I got what I wanted, right? And, and, and I'm so thankful that, that we have a unity here, but it's, it's just, it, it could be a very easy, a very quick thing for disunity to come into a place. And a lot of it happens because of envying, because of bitterness, because of strife. And when we allow those things to come in, man, it's, it can so easily split a church. It can so easily split a family. It can so easily split so many different things. There's a hardness of heart that's caused by the sin of envy. And that's the opposite of gentleness and compassion and, and long-suffering. When you feel that you're in competition with everybody else around you, that you have to fight, that you have to struggle with, uh, that you have to win, prevail over them. You're thinking and acting with the wisdom from below. Plenty of examples of that in the Bible, by the way. Um, we don't have time to look at it, but I'll give you the, the passages and you can go look at them later. But Genesis chapter 30, Rachel was envious of Leah. 
And look at the strife that was caused in that family, right? In that home. Uh, Numbers chapter 16. We also read it in Psalm 106. Korah was envious of Moses and his position. And look at the strife and the division that was caused because of it. And, and, and honestly, look at the result that was caused as a result of all that too. Mark chapter 15, the, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders were envious of Jesus and the people that were following him. And it caused all kinds of division. Uh, they, they made the, they, it caused the government to rise up against Jesus. In fact, that's what ultimately led to his crucifixion. Envy, strife. Worldly wisdom will do whatever it can to make itself look better and make the other guy look worse so it can shove him down and, and, and raise itself. The, the worldly wisdom is characterized by bitter envying and strife. But the second thing we find there in James chapter 3 and verse 16, wisdom from below is characterized by confusion and every evil work. Now, what does that mean? For He says, if, but if you have bitterness and envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, uh, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. So obviously you can, you can see that, that really these things are, are all hinging on each other. Envying, bitterness, strife, and where those things are, there's going to be confusion and every evil work. But that's, a, that's what the wisdom from below is characterized by. When envying is nurtured, Instead of confessed and rejected, bitterness is the result, and that produces strife. And when strife begins to run, it, run its course, there's no telling where it's going to lead. Here's another example. Look at, look at that, that story of Joseph, right? Look at his brothers and how they envied him. And uh, they, 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 they envied him to the point where they disregarded their father's feelings. They knew how their father was going to feel when he found out that Joseph was gone. But they were so jealous of Joseph and so envious of him that they did all of those things to him knowing that it was going to hurt their father, and they did it anyway. And what a disappointment was to their father. But it led to the hardening of their hearts against Joseph, uh, even their willingness to murder him. That's what they thought they were doing. But all of that started in it, over envy of Joseph. And they nurtured that envy in their hearts, and instead of renouncing it before God, they followed through with that. And that, that envy led to bitterness and hatred and strife and kidnapping and lying, and that's the effect or the fruit or the consequence of this type of wisdom. Turn over to Judges chapter 17, because I think this really, this really is the embodiment of this type of wisdom. See, when everybody's out for themselves, when everybody will use any and... and, and and all methods to advance themselves instead of worrying about other people, caring about other people, when they're willing to do anything to advance themselves, even to the expense of everybody else around them, it's just utter confusion. And that's exactly what was happening in Israel. Judges chapter 17 and verse number 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And look at the confusion that was going on in Israel at the time. I think we have one more good example of that, and, and again, we don't have the time to, to go through it, but all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, and you find the story of Cain and Abel, right? You know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was bitter that his sacrifice wasn't accepted. He was envious that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and he viewed himself as being in a competition, and the, and, and the confusion and the evil work 
that resulted was ultimately the murder of Abel. All of that started with that envy and that bitterness. It's also important to point out here, back in James chapter 3, that the lie that most people live in regard to worldly wisdom, he says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Now, James gives this warning, I think, because it's, it's very typical for those who walk in this, this carnal strife and the gossiping and the backbiting and the, the envying and, and all of these other things that go along with that, they claim to be right with God, Right? How many times, uh, and, and maybe you've been in a situation in a church like this where there was just a lot of going on and everybody's walking around doing their ministries and pretending like they're right with God and pretending that there's nothing wrong, and, but they have this envy and they have, they're gossiping and they're backbiting and they have all of this stuff going on. But a lot of times they think of themselves as wiser or more spiritual than the other people. And they refuse to repent even though they fail the test of true wisdom. God's word says that 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 those who say that they're walking in wisdom but live according to the ways of those who are not walking in wisdom, live according to those who are, are, are following this fallen world, he says they're liars and they're doing not the, they do not the truth. The language of this, uh, of this truth is just very plain and very simple. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. See, the first step toward getting the wisdom from above is to acknowledge your condition. You've got to acknowledge that, that, that these are things that you're doing. If I agree with God's word and, and I confess my sin of walking according to the world, according to the flesh, according to the devil, I can, I can have God's mercy. But if I pretend everything's fine and I refuse to acknowledge my sin, there is not going to be any spiritual progress. And 1 John chapter 1, again, we don't have time to go through all of that. 1 John 1, 9 ends with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the context and the passage leading up to that is basically saying to Christians, don't pretend that you're living for God and have sin in your life. Don't, don't act like you have fellowship and you've got all these other things going on. He said, what you need to do is confess it. And, he, and forsake it, and then you'll have mercy. But, but this, this idea that he's talking about in James chapter 3 and verse 14 in particular is, is textbook walking in darkness rather than light. And he says that, that you're never going to have that, that wisdom from above. So that's the wisdom from below. Well, what about the wisdom from above? We find that in the last two verses of this chapter. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality hypocrisy. See, the wisdom from below is a description of the devil. It's a description of the devil himself. The description of the wisdom from above is a description of Jesus Christ. And if you think about that as we go through it, it makes, it makes perfect sense. The wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. Pure is innocent. It's clean. It's not mixed with anything wrong. Really, what this is referring to is purity from sin, which is what we call holiness. That's what, that's what holiness is. The same Greek word, hagnos, is translated chaste in several other passages in the Bible. There's a lot of emphasis on purity in the Scripture. And when we talk about purity, holiness. There's a lot of emphasis on holiness in the Word of God. Be holy as I am holy. That's what God said, right? 
Not just sexual purity, that's included, but unstained by anything. God is holy. And, and, and if he is effectually working in a person's life, that person is going to pursue holiness. And, and as I say, when we talk about purity, a lot of times we're thinking about you know, uh, sexual purity and everything else. And again, that's included. But purity, purity is purity, meaning there's, it's not going to be stained by anything. It's going to be absolutely clean, absolutely right. And that's what this, you know, this, uh, this non-denominational rock and roll Christianity that's emphasizing, you know, uh, tolerance of sin and, oh, I have my liberty in Christ and, and non-judgmentalism more than purity and holy separation. That's not purity and holiness, right? It's, it's stained by things that are part of the world. The true grace of God is first pure, and it teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's what it's going to teach us if we're trying to live pure. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't leave room for doing all these other things that the world is doing. It doesn't leave room for us to be like the world and be like Christ at the same time. You can't have both. And that's what Christianity today, most of Christianity today is trying to do. You can have Christ and you can have the world. You can have both. Let's just mix them together. They don't mix. It's like oil and water. Right? You can try, you can put them in the same cup, but they're going to separate. And that's, that's, what, that's what holy living is compared to worldly living. They do not mix. You cannot have both. You, like, like the Bible says, you cannot love God and mammon. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot have them both. And so many Christians today are trying to straddle that fence. They're trying to walk with one foot in the world and one foot in holiness, and it does not work. You either have to be all holy or all world, and most Christians are taking the world. But the wisdom from above, the Bible said, is first pure, but then it says that it's peaceable. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. True wisdom loves peace. It's, it's always inclined toward peace if there's any godly possible way to have it. And it fits right in, and there's a lot of verses that we could look at that go right along with this, but one in particular I think that is about as plain as can be is Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. It says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now that doesn't mean that, that true wisdom keeps peace at any cost. Does not care more for peace than for truth and righteousness. And there's a lot of people who, who are willing to settle for peace at the cost of truth and righteousness. Well, I just don't want to, I don't want to be the one that upsets the apple cart, so I, I you know, I'll, I don't really agree with him, but for the sake of unity, right? Isn't that what, isn't that what everybody's saying today in, in Christianity? Oh, you guys need to stop, stop, stop creating arguments. Stop, stop pretending like worldliness is a problem. We just all need to get along. We're all one in Christ. And if you're saved, yes, we are one in Christ, but there's also a standing up for truth and right. We ought to stand up for what's right. We ought to fight the good fight of faith, but we ought not to do it because we love fighting. Right? And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of Christians today who are doing it just for the sake of fighting. We ought to love peace. We should be striving for peace in the home. We should be striving for peace in the workplace. We ought to be striving for peace in our church. We ought to be striving for peace in our neighborhoods. Godly wisdom both loves and produces this peace. 
And that's not just saying, oh, you know, I want world peace. It's not, it, that's what the Bible says. He says, this, uh, uh, verse, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. And he says that it's gentle and easy to be entreated. That's the third thing. That's the third characteristic. The wisdom from above is gentle and easy to be entreated. True wisdom is willing to listen to others, to submit to the truth. It's not self-opinionated. It doesn't reject good counsel. It's willing to, to answer questions and to explain itself, eager to resolve problems. Psalm 18, verse 35 says this, Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath held me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. It's a perfect picture of Jesus. Right? Think about what he did. Easily approachable. He allowed men to ask questions. Think about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Right? He, was, he was approachable. He explained himself very clearly. He was gentle and easy to be entreated. That's what it's talking about here. Easy to be entreated means easy to deal with. It doesn't mean wishy-washy, but it means easy to deal with. You can come to, you can come to me. That's what, that's what easy to be entreated is. Right? It means people don't have to be afraid or intimidated in their dealings with you. By the way, in whatever capacity you lead, whether that's in your home or, your, or, or, or in a church capacity or in work or whatever else, you shouldn't lead by intimidation. That's what it means to be gentle and easy to be entreated. And then the fourth thing we see is that the wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. He says, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. See, this is, this is what's required of peacemakers who maintain true spiritual unity in their homes, in their churches. True wisdom is merciful and patient and kind. It really speaks of your own mental attitude as, it, as it's directed toward other people. What are you inclined to do first? When you see something or hear something or, or, or you know, see somebody, do you extend mercy or punishment? Do you generally see the good first, or do you spot the mistake first? True wisdom is full of good fruits. It's not content to excel in only one or two spiritual things. First, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. So true wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits, and it continuously adding to those things. Then we see that the wisdom from above is without partiality. And I'm not going to take a lot of time. We spent a lot of time talking about that in chapter 2. But true wisdom doesn't play favorites. And again, we talked about that. It, it applies the truth equally to everyone. You're not going to look at somebody who's rich and say, oh, well, you come sit in this seat. You're poor. You sit back there. Uh, it doesn't, it's not going to exercise uh, discipline against some members and ignore the sins of others because of who they are. That happens a lot in churches. You know, you're not really anybody here, so we're going to come down hard on you, but oh, you give a lot of money, or you are, you know, such and such prestige, and so we'll sweep yours under the rug. That's, that's, that's partiality. Re, you know, require some workers and leaders to meet required standards, allow others to get by with things. It doesn't allow some people to get away with gossip and strife and then come down hard on somebody else who's doing the exact same thing. That's what it means to, to live without partiality. And that's what the wisdom from above is characterized by. One more that we see, and that is that the wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. 
It's sincerity. It's not pretending. True wisdom doesn't preach one thing to other people and then live contrary to that preaching with no intent of changing. Right? That's, that's what a lot, that so many people, and, and how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I don't go to church because that's full of hypocrites. That's a horrible excuse for coming to church. Are you coming to church for the people that are there, or, for, or are you coming to church for God, right? I mean, that's a horrible excuse anyway, but it's not without merit in a lot of cases, because most Christians are hypocrites. They'll say one thing, and they'll, they'll be one way at church, and then they go home, and they live a completely different way. And everybody sees them when they're, when they're around, expect them to be a certain way, and then they see them when they're around those who don't necessarily expect them to be. It's two, two totally different things. It, and, and that's what true wisdom, it's not, make, it's, it's, it's not making a show of being what you're not. So many Christians do that. It doesn't condemn others for things that they're guilty of. David Cloud wrote this in his commentary. For example, the wisdom from above does not condemn a new church member for something like wearing a modern fashion that's not perfectly modest or for wearing too much makeup or such things while allowing envy and hatred and pride and strife and insubordination to rule in his own heart. That's a great way to put it. Now, as we close, we mentioned this briefly at the beginning, but the evidence of wisdom is going to be found in the way that a man lives his life. James chapter 3 and verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. A wise man lives a, a, a beautiful, praiseworthy, excellent, worthy, moral lifestyle. His behavior and his conduct and manner of living is good. It's going to be lived in meekness as other people see it. Um, do you see how much that contrasts with the wisdom from below? And by the way, people will know that if you claim to be a Christian and, and yet you live a life that's influenced by and evidenced by the wisdom of the world, they may not understand a whole lot of theology, but they can, they can definitely understand how you live your life in relation to how the, the, the non-professing wicked around you live. People see a difference, and they expect a difference out of you. James chapter 3 and verse number 18 says, And the fruit of righteousness is sown... In peace of them that make peace. The great proof or evidence or fruit of life directed by God's wisdom is a life that's at peace. Peaceful marriage, peaceful home, peaceful workplace, a peaceful career, peaceful relationships. It's a peaceful spirit no matter what's going on around you. Three verses that I want to look at real quick and then we're done. I'm only going to have you look at one of them though. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 17, while you're turning over, it says this, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. What a, what a result of somebody who lives a life of righteousness. Man, there's not going to be the chaos and the mess and the, uh, just the, everything that goes on in, in the lives of people who don't have a desire to live for Christ. The work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What another, just such a, such a reassuring verse to live for God, to live in righteousness, to live in holiness. 
But this peaceful spirit, no matter what's going on around you, I think really is summed up in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That's the mark of a life living with wisdom from above. The fruit of righteousness, he says in verse 18 of James chapter 3, is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Boy, what a, what a life living for Christ. What a, what a contrast between these two types of wisdom. Living after the worldly wisdom... That's earthly, sensual, devilish, just filled with all kinds of these, these, these negative consequences, or living a life of, of wisdom from above. That's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of that is righteous, the fruit of that righteousness is peace. And what a wonderful life it is. Great, great contrast that James gives us between those two types of wisdom. Are you living after the wisdom of the world? Or are you living after the wisdom as from above? That's the two choices. And boy, the wisdom that comes from above has a whole lot better consequences than the wisdom that's from below. We'll get into chapter 4 next week. But let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us and for an opportunity we've had to open your word and to look at these things tonight. Pray that you would just help us to live with, with the wisdom from above, that we'd reject the worldly wisdom, and that we'd have uh, just lives of peace because we're following you. Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.